0: Unbind your mind. Mm -hmm. It came out of the Chinese habit of binding women's feet. It was very costly to the whole society, and when women were young and they were getting their feet bound because it was incredibly painful, and they said, when I grow up, I'm never going to do this to my daughters, but they did, because that was how you survived in the society. A thousand years, basically half the population had their feet where the toes were put under the arch. And then the arch was crushed forward so that these bones up here broke and crammed into something that desirably was no bigger than three inches. How are you binding your mind? What are you doing to bind your mind? And one of the ways we bind our mind is we say, I'm not creative.
1: Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Janelle Barlow and dive deep into hats one, three, and four. The soul, the servant, and the entrepreneur as we receive a gift like no other from an incredible lady who at six years old knew she was destined for greatness, but to fulfill her destiny had to escape from the very place that would hold her back. Janelle is an award-winning author, speaker, consultant, and subject matter expert on what I believe is one of the most critical areas entrepreneurs need to get right to succeed, and that is complaint handling and world-class customer support. So if you're interested in receiving the gift of complaint, stay tuned, and let's welcome Janelle to the 7 Hats. Janelle, Janelle, (laughs) welcome to The Seven Hats. I'm glad
0: to be here. I think I've got seven hats in my closet, so we're right on scale.
1: I I love it. I love it. So, Janelle, I'm a huge believer in culture and client success. Uh I've built all my businesses around those principles first and foremost. Um, I'm actually all in on the Zappos, Amazon, Nordstrom cultures of delivering world-class service. And I think, actually... I don't really think I know that they work because they're proven. Right. right? So you're a world renowned complaint handling expert. And I'm curious to get your take on that subject. But but before we go there, Mm -hmm. I feel that our beginnings can tell us so much about how our life journey was shaped throughout the years. So I'd love to start if it's okay with you, with your background. Mm -hmm. Where were you born and how was your childhood like?
0: Well, I was born in Huron, South Dakota, and you probably don't meet too many people who were. I'm about 50 miles away from where George McGovern was was born. My uh, father, was he started off as a uh, farmer during the Second World War, and then he went bankrupt. And so then he moved into this small town, Huron, and that's where I was born. When I was six years of age, I knew I had been born in the wrong State the wrong city, the wrong place, and it was just a process of how am I going to get out of here? I I know most children that age don't have that thought quite so clearly in their minds, but but I did, Um, and so I filled my life up with things that I learned to do. I was in a speech contest when I was six years old. I was uh, I played the piano. I mean, I really worked hard at developing myself, and then I left when I. Could could go off to college, and um, I still have a brother who lives in South Dakota. He's a wonderful guy, um, but the the whole experience of living there taught me that there's just so much more going on in this world than in these small rural towns. I don't disapprove of people who choose to live there, but by gosh, you know, I knew it wasn't for me, and that's really the key, I think. You know, is is what is it for you? And I I think I know a little bit about your background in terms of your entrepreneurship just hasn't been about earning money. And my work is not just about earning money either, though I've made a lot of it over the course of the years. Uh, I've never paid attention to money. I generally, you know, we work out an agreement and then that's it. It just goes in the background. I don't pay attention to it. And I like a lot of variety. So when opportunities come along, I take them and then I see what happens. So that's that's pretty much my background.
1: You know, it's funny. At six years old, I remember thinking to myself, (laughs) it was just a weird thought. I mean, it wasn't like a a concrete thought in a sense, but it was Mm -hmm. a thought. And I remember that. It was, I'm going to do something big in my life. I'm mm-hmm. going to do something grand. I don't know what it is. I'm going to do something grand. I'm I'm more than what others believe I am. I'm more than what I even believe I am at this point. Mm. And I had that. I had that that concept in my mind, and and I never forgot it over the years. Mm-hmm. And like you, money is a tool. Yes, it a is. lot of yeah. a lot of individuals, especially entrepreneurs, they mistaken money as success, mm-hmm. and it really isn't because. Mm-hmm. It comes in and out, and it literally is a tool so you can provide more value, so you can achieve more greatness in your life. So it's really cool. I love that uh, background. Yeah, my goal has always been with my work is to have,
0: to offer something to people to help them get what they want. Uh, I, I think of myself as an influencer. I, I do happen to write a lot. Um, I've just been writing this book, A Complaint is a Gift. I had an injury with my foot, um, which is an interesting story because I should have complained about it, but I didn't. And I had to have surgery and a cadaver's uh, tendon put in my foot. This is really unpleasant. I'm now walking, finally, after the end of August. I'm now walking. (laughs) But I, I, I I didn't complain. But what it did was, when the offer came along to take the complaint as a gift book, which has been out in two editions... And do a third edition. And so I had all this time. I mean, I couldn't move. I was in a cast. And um, so uh, I've been writing. And I've got a stack of papers that big of all the things that I've written now in the last five months. And I'm beginning to realize, I think maybe I'm more of an author than anything else that I have thought I was. I, I, I maybe
1: yeah have when while growing up did you have grand dreams of being a teacher an author someone who's going to help so many tens of thousands or millions of people or what was the dream growing up what did your parents want of you and what did you what did yeah you want?
0: My, oh my parents thought i should stick around they didn't see anything wrong with living in huron south dakota and i couldn't see anything right about it wow. <laughs> i remember once in high school our, our high school english teacher who asked us to write an essay about what's one of the greatest things about being from Huron, South Dakota? And my answer was, if you, you needed to be a child growing up in this city to or in this town, because you would never be, you would never, as an adult, say I want to go back and live in Huron. So unless you experienced it as a child, you would never get to experience it in your life. And I said that's the good thing about this. Oh, I got a low grade on that paper. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like that at all <laughs> but that's how I felt about it I mean South Dakota is a very very flat state where I was now on the west side Rapid yeah. City you know where the, the the Mount Rushmore is has very mountainous and it's beautiful out there but on the eastern side of the state I mean wherever you look it's flat I never could tell what was north, east, south or west because wherever I looked it was all the same um when I moved to California, to San Francisco, it was like, wow, look at that. There's the there's the water. That means that that is to the West. And so I could easily tell then where I was.
1: I love that. So when did you move to um, San Francisco?
0: It was, it, it, I had just finished up a master's degree at the University of Pittsburgh. And then I got accepted into uh, Berkeley, which is really, truly amazing. They had like a thousand applicants and I was one of 25 and I got in and i was studying political science then and i realized that was not what i wanted to do it it was it was so conflict laden i just did not want to do that so i switched over to education uh, lived out of the country for 3 years and got involved with not with school education but with the whole process of learning that was very intriguing to me so i did that and then i started a little business uh, up <laughs> up in Northern California. And and then I moved back to San Francisco, got married. And then I started teaching stress management. I had had so much stress in my life. You wouldn't believe how much stress I had. I mean, I, I was told if I didn't change by the time I was 30, I probably wouldn't be alive. I was just so focused on just getting as much done as I could. and I, And I didn't know how to do that well. So I started studying the whole field, and then I started going into corporations and offering that. And then I met a Danish group, and they invited me to join them, and that was a worldwide global organization. That's a redundant statement there, <laughs> a global organization, and, um, and so I started teaching some of the things that they were teaching, but I was doing a lot of my own things as well. But I really enjoyed that. I set up a business for that company in the United States, and uh, that was interesting, Um, I mean, I'd never really run a business. I had my own self, but not a business with employees. And, and then they kicked me out of the company and it was, it was really bad. I didn't, mind. I mean, I'm really glad I got, I really glad that I got kicked out because otherwise I'd probably still be there complaining about being there.
1: So (laughs) speaking about complaints. So I'd love to actually delve in a little bit in terms of you being a complaint handling expert, right? So how did you manage to learn the wisdom of delivering world-class service? It's so hard. So many entrepreneurs out there struggle with this with this field. So how did you get to become world-class?
0: Well, um, I, I'm a very good observer. And so I've always observed when I got good service and when I didn't get good service. And, and then I just got, I got interested in the field of complaint handling because it's a narrow set of what service is. And I, here's what I know is that you really need to, in your life, you need to you know explore and i have explored boy have i explored but then at some point you really need to narrow down your focus so that cuz you don't i realize as i get older i don't have all the time in the world that i would like i do not you know it, it takes a while to get to know that when we're young we're thinking god is this is going to go on forever now i wake up in the morning and then i'm going to bed at night it's amazing
1: isn't <laughs> it's, that crazy it's just it's
0: crazy <laughs> it's really it is really crazy how fast Time is going by. You know, we're already in the month of February here in the...
1: uh don't even get me started on that one. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So so I I I want to speed up and get as much done as I can because I realized there's probably not that many more years left. I mean, maybe a few decades, but it's not like this when you're a child and you look ahead it's like I'm never going to die. I remember my husband told me one way we got married at one point. He said, "We're never going to get old." I keep saying, you, promise. <laughs> <laughs> "You promised." You promised.
1: I promised my wife five more lifetimes because I. Oh, but that that,
0: thats a possibility. That's that might
1: be a possibility.
0: In this lifetime, I don't think so.
1: Got a lot to do. That is very true. So speaking of a lot to do, and let's talk about complaint handling a little bit further, a little deeper. You know, I watched one of your videos. It was so hilarious. I, I got to say, I was. Uh, I, I watched it maybe three to four times. I was chuckling the whole way. It was a video where you schooled a guy named race. Uh, oh, yes. When you spoke at UC USAA, right. I believe yes, uh-huh. uh, you were so fabulous. I mean, in, in that clip, you literally taught the audience your notion that customer complaints are actually gifts and you were going back and forth with him. You didn't get it for like three times. Why is feedback from customers a gift?
0: Well, there's uh, there's all kinds of reasons why complaints are gifts, but certainly one of the major ones is, is that you can learn from them. You can figure out what isn't working for that customer, and chances are it's not working for other customers as well. So there's a lot of product and service knowledge that you gain from listening to what they have to say. So you don't have to go out and do a whole bunch of marketing research, which I really wonder sometimes about all the marketing research that goes on. But there is somebody who's talking with you and telling you from their heart what's happened and almost always they're emotional. So it's, in most cases, it's quite genuine. I, I don't think very many customers walk into a business with the intention of cheating. I just don't think they do that We're, Yeah, of course. Yeah. So y- if you listen to them, you c- you can learn from them. And you have a chance to turn them around. And this is maybe one of the really significant things you can turn them around from they walk in they're disturbed about something that happened. And now you can turn them around so that they walk out happy, and that means you've probably retained them as a customer. And that is so much less expensive than advertising and so on. I mean, it's it it, it just seems so obvious. It seems so obvious when you look at it. Uh, and they're still talking with you. You know, those customers who are complaining are telling you, and not a gazillion other people, and exaggerating probably about what happened, no doubt. So there's, I mean, there's there's a number of other reasons as well. I used to say there were two reasons and now I'm up to five and I've got a whole bunch more that maybe I'll save for the fourth edition of a complaint. <laughs> and it's linked, it's linked also, can I just say this? It's linked also to sales. Uh, yeah. Because uh, people will, if they're upset and then you satisfy them, they'll come back more. That the research is quite clear on that. But also they'll buy more because they feel... This sense of responsibility, you did something for them. You helped them work through this issue. Whether they got what they want really isn't so important. It's how you treat them. It's how you handle them that you interact with them, I want to say.
1: There's a psychology behind it. I mean, after watching that video, I had a customer or client complaint that came all the way up to me. And I remember picking up the phone and Mm -hmm. saying, John, I wanted to thank you for bringing this to my attention. Thank you for this gift because now I can go back and work with my team. I can go back and develop the product. I'm sorry you had a bad experience, but your willingness to come forth and tell me about this where others might not helps not just myself and my company, but also other clients and you. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And it changed the entire dynamic from, from, from a nasty email Ready to leave to mm-hmm. a contributing member of the overall team. In a sense, yeah, it's like they become partners with you. You're, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're both then working on
0: solving whatever the issue is.
1: Yeah. So, if you can put on your complaint as a gift hat mm-hmm. and tell us what are the top most impactful principles that allow entrepreneurs to successfully handle customer complaints? What can they do, top two, top three, where they can get a quick win today?
0: Well, I think that the first thing is that you have to look at the mindsets, the belief systems that you have about complaints. And that's why Mm -hmm. a complaint is a gift is such a powerful phrase because it is a complete mindset in and of itself. A complaint is a gift. Okay. Do you get that? Okay, Ben, you took the first step.
1: I took the first step.
0: You took the first step. Uh, m- most people will do what you did, which is the next time they have an opportunity to complain, they or, or when they hear a complaint, they will then use the formula that is suggested in the book, which is the first step is to say, thank you. Thank you. There's something about, and i just going to interrupt this one a little bit, that there, there are these chains of communication that humans get into. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative. One of the positive communication chains is I say to you, thank you. And then you say, you're welcome. You're welcome. That's right. Everybody, everybody says that. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And now what we've got is a communication positive communication chain going. And if you were the customer who was upset with me and I've said, thank you, and you've said, you're welcome back again, you're less likely to go into the negative side of that complaint, but rather, what can we do about it? And then your language helps. The language is important here. That That is for certain. That is for certain. The second thing I want to say that I don't think most people are talking about today, uh, but in my research that I've done this past year, what I found is that I really do think that the whole field of complaint handling is going to change because of big data. Mm. You know, this, I ran into one study where there, they did analysis of 20 million online appraisals and positive or negative. negative 20 million. I mean, <laughs> you can't even wrap your head around that. Now they've learned some really powerful things. Really powerful things. For example, if somebody sends you an online positive feedback, don't do anything with it. Let it sit there because the way that the algorithms on most of these these websites that do these massive accumulation of complaints is they let the if if you respond, it starts to go down the area. So you want to respond to the negative ones first. The positive ones let them sit up there because that's who the other people are going to see. They've, I mean, the things that they've uncovered in this twenty million. Feedback, I, I think that's going to change the whole field because I just saw recently somebody had this study. They said, we we interviewed 3,200 people. I think that's nothing. <laughs> 3,200 compared to 20 million, it's nothing. So that's good on that side. We're going to learn things in the next few years that we have not just because of big data analysis that is going on. At the same time, I think what it does is it lets them off that exchange that one-to-one that people have somebody comes up to me and complains and I say thank you so much for telling me I never would have guessed that and you're telling me so thank you you can't accomplish that with a review of 20 million pieces Mm -hmm. of feedback on an online uh, platform you just can't so we're you know we're going to get some things but we're also going to lose some things and I hope we don't lose that person-to-person piece of information that comes in. I mean, one person can make a difference. Uh, I mean, in terms of, of your business, uh, depending on who that person is, and you don't know when they come up and complain to you, you don't know. So you, you really need to evaluate those people. Is this somebody who's going to make a difference? And same time, you want to look at that new research that's coming in,
1: what to do. You know, it's with AI, artificial intelligence, yes, right. uh, big data, the mm-hmm. metaverse right now, where they're thinking that ultimately we'll have chips implanted in our brains and just kind of live a virtual life. So it's really weird when we were growing up, there was so much human interaction. You went out to play with your friends, right? You weren't sitting around playing video games. I mean, we had Atari, but that's nothing, wow. right? Compared to what it is Hours, today. Hours every night you play with your friends. Yeah. And so I think we're missing that too, in terms of that social engagement chip. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine how the interaction with businesses will be as we become more virtual, rather than picking up a phone and speaking with someone. Mm-hmm. Customer success, right, or mm-hmm. client success? Mm-hmm. You have complaints, and you have all these different interactions. You have right. at each at each point in your journey on your journey with with your with the so vendors that you work with. It's
0: a both and. We we both need this large data analysis because yeah. so many times we make mistakes when we base it on thirty two hundred people compared to twenty million. The other side of it, though, is that we've lost them, that individual that individual connection. There's another thing that's happening with complaints today that is, I'm really intrigued by, and I don't quite know what to do with it, except I know I want to research about it. And that is that it used to be that uh, if things were very, very complex, they got handled in one way. If they, things were simple, then we would turn this over to people who didn't have a lot of skill set. All they had to do was to look at something and say yes or no. Yeah. Your warranty is out or your warranty is not out. You don't need a lot of skill sets to do something like that. But then there is the other side of it that is like the Apple side of, of the technician's healthiness. Those people are complaint handlers, if you think about it.
1: Yeah, of course. I know
0: yeah. they, they, they don't call them that because nobody likes to say, I'm calling Apple to complain. I'm calling Apple to get help from the genius bar from su- support, Apple Care. So you know the, how we're describing them is making it easier for everybody. But really, basically, everybody's involved with complaint handling. If you really so think speaking.
1: Of but so speaking of complaint handling, why do you think sales and service people get it wrong? Because they, so many do. Why do you think that is? Well,
0: part of it has to do with how they're compensated. Sales, in particular, they're compensated for how much they sell, not necessarily whether they sell <clears throat> what. You have promised to deliver, but whether or not you can sell it—that's yeah. that's how. You get so
1: over over promising, under delivering.
0: Totally, totally, and then it gets handed over to these service complaint handlers, who have t- to fix that stuff, and they—they they don't like that either. They don't like that either. Most, if you look at where the biggest amount of feedback that goes to the customer, it's really on the after-sales side they they drop the ball once once they've sold to you they're out of there basically basically
1: yeah yeah do you think do you think that this skill is learned or are you born it's, with it it,
0: it it's it, i think it's behavioral it's based on how it's rewarded uh and you know the more you sell the better you're seen as valuable to the company it doesn't matter if you have to hire 30 more people to cover up your what you sold but you, you sold it that's and you know, it's that whole business again about money and that, that that becomes the measure of whether or not you are successful.
1: Would you, do you think that we would have better service if companies hired those that are already skilled at service rather than having to train them?
0: Or maybe set up compensation packages that include more than just how many people you were able to sell. Maybe it also includes how many people you were able to retain because of how you handled the problems that they faced. Putting it together, I know service people tell me all the time they all those people in sales they'll promise the moon and then we have to fix it. They don't like that.
1: There's always this customer or client, and you know them. They're absolutely in the wrong. I mean, you know they're in the wrong. They Mm -hmm. just like to complain. Do you believe the outage, the old outage that the customers always right?
0: No, I don't. I mean, obviously the customer can be wrong, but you know what? So are we, as on the other side of the field, I and mean, you know, people in business make mistakes. They get the dates wrong. They get the times wrong. They get all kinds of things, and they p- produce things that don't work. So no, we're both we're both wrong, but at the same time, we're both right as well. If what we're trying to do is to keep that customer with us, that's uh, that, that's how we're right. You never ever ever want to say to a customer you're wrong. That's just, <laughs>
1: just that's just stupid. that's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah that that is just and they but they do I mean service people do say that so you just want to say hmm let me let's take a look at this together let's see what can be done here I mean there's so many of these general kinds of of statements I'll tell you a really quick story from Apple once I was in one of the stores and it was at the genius bar waiting to get my computer looked at and a little boy maybe six years of age came up and he, he looked like he was about to cry and his, he had an older sister with him and she was standing with her hands like this. And the mother didn't, who was there, we didn't look happy either. And so the little boy held out his apple and then the cracked screen and he said, I dropped my iPhone. This is so pitiful. And the, the genius bar guy, he looked, he, he looks at him and He said, Oh, he said, you sure did. You It's broken. And, uh, He said, uh, let me see what I can do. What a great statement, huh? I love that. Uh, It's just perfect. And so he walked back and stood in that little room that they have off the Genius Bars. And he stood there. I don't know what he did there. Maybe he, you know, had something to drink, talk with some friends. I don't know. But they're empowered to take care of things like that. And he came back out in a few minutes and he had the new Apple iPhone box Nicely. And he gave it to the little boy and he said, you know, we don't normally do this, but I know you're a special person and I'm going to give you this new iPhone. Kid, I mean, he just won the gold medal. I mean,
1: that's what you call lifelong customer.
0: Exactly. And and then the man said to him, you know, you might want to buy a little cover for your iPhone so that when you drop it, it doesn't break. Then another guy came up, middle-aged guy, and he had an iPhone in his hand that had Things hanging out of it. <laughs> he really broken it. And he said, um, "He said I ran over it with my car. <laughs> and the Apple guy said, well, he said, you know, we don't normally replace iPhones that have been run over by cars. He said, but let me see what I can do. Yeah,
1: let me see what I can do. <laughs> and he walked
0: away and went into, this was just sheer theater as far as I was concerned. And, and then he came out a little bit later and he had a box, an Apple box with the with the phone in it. And he said, um, I can't, you know, we don't cover breakage like that. He said, but I can't give it this to you, but I can give you a $100 deduction off, off a new iPhone. And that guy was just so tickle pink. I mean, it was clearly his fault. It's not Apple's fault that he ran over his phone. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, those two guys, those two, that little boy and that man, they're both just, it's perfect. If people can learn to do that sort of thing, you know, he could have blamed the little boy, he could have blamed the man, he could have done all this kinds of things, but the Apple guy didn't. Let me see what I can do.
1: Yeah, it's the little things and it doesn't cost them much, but the amount of money that these folks are going to spend over a lifetime are going to be a 100x return to what they've actually spent.
0: Apple Computer is now a $3 trillion company.
1: Yeah, and there's a reason, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason for it. <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing uh, happens by accident. <laughs> so let's <laughs> move on to branded service. Uh, I'd love to start off with, ba- with a basic understanding, right, of what is a brand and then what is branded service, if you don't mind. A
0: brand is a promise and branded service is we promise, we deliver. That's it in a nutshell right there. So the question for the company is, are you on brand? It's a term that. I like to use, which means that you're delivering your promise, then you're on brand or are you off brand, which means that you're not delivering the promise It's really very simple concept. It's like a complaint is a gift. It's so simple.
1: Yeah. And I had the same conversation with my service team success team yesterday. A brand is a promise. It's Mm -hmm. your word, right? and You you need to make sure that you honor that word because what happens if the people you love don't honor their word? Mm-hmm. same thing, yeah. right right, right.
0: yeah, they have to apologize very big time if, <laughs> if they for don't sure
1: and if you do it too if you if you withdraw too much from your bank account, guess what? Right. you're gonna be exactly. negative. Yeah. So let's say the company founders are service freaks like you and I, right. Mm-hmm. How do we get the staff to see the vision as we do? I mean, especially, as the company grows from a small team, which is much easier to manage, yes. to one that's sizable enough where the founders are actually no longer intimately working with their team. Mm-hmm. How, does, how, mm-hmm. does, how does that go?
0: Yeah, that really, you're, you're asking the culture question of what is the culture that we have? And the culture needs to be on the inside what it's going to deliver on the outside. It Those two need to be connected. And many, many times they're not. Uh, You know, the the company has decided this is our position. This is who we are. But the whole internal structure isn't set up to support that, including do we take feedback and complaints inside the company? How how do we handle complaints inside the organization? So that's all very, very important or else you don't get that brand delivered. But then of course, there's a lot of education that goes in with that as well. Um, for example, um, let's say people who are writing letters to customers, they need to be there needs to be a style of the brand. and I don't mean the font that you use and all of that, but I mean the emotional flavor yeah. of that. It, it needs to reflect what the brand is because then every time you do that, you are in effect marketing your brand. Every time you're reinforcing the brand, you're marketing it. Pretty genius, isn't it? Yeah. It, it is. <laughs> it's
1: just, it, it It deserves a pause because I think, again, this topic is so dear to my heart. We built, my co-founder uh-huh. and I, we built our culture with PromoMash, our current company that we run together. Number one was, how are we going to create a brand that delivers and helps our client we, we use client we use customer we use client mm-hmm. to achieve their the results that they seek because they have a problem and we can help them right that's, we're why, so, they to- that's why they come to us we're so emphatical about it that sarah meyer our vp of client success actually won uh, at a national success championship she got a big huh? belt right so i'm very proud of you sarah meyer dirk and, and so, and that's, and that's how we instill it to, to the rest of the team. I think in terms of the success side of the business, right? There's a lot of creativity that must go behind that. And you're also a create, creativity expert, right? Yeah. So how do you become more creative as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, when there's so much noise out there? I know that sometimes when, cause I live in cities, I've been living in cities all my life. When I'm really surrounded by a lot of noise, when I don't take time to you know to you know for myself, I, I I stifle my creativity, right? So what are your suggestions as an expert, right? How do you cultivate creativity internally?
0: Creativity is I think, more complex than, say, complaint handling uh, because each of us are creative in in different ways. But I think creativity, like so many of these subject areas starts with the decision that you make, that you're creative. So I start there. I'm creative. Then what I do is I begin to look for all the ways in which I display my creative. But if I say to myself, you're not creative, you're not an artist, you're not a poet, you're not this, you're not that, which is what a lot of people do. They have yes. defined creativity as artistic talent, as, and, and I don't have any of those, so therefore I must not be creative. Um, but it, it it really it starts with that decision. I am creative. Then what you do is you start looking for things that you're doing that are creative, and that you see them. Oh, you say, look at that! Look at that! I I put this over here. I did this. I did that. And all of a sudden, you begin to start noticing the ways in which you are creative. Now, maybe you're not a Albert Einstein kind of creative or a Van Gogh kind of creative. You're a you kind of creative, and the more you work on that, the more you'll see that creativity. It really is a self-reinforcing concept. I I see that.
1: It's interesting what you just said. I just spoke with the world famous Jim Cathcart. I don't know if you know. Who oh he is. yes, I know. He's a friend of mine. He speaks of nature versus nurture. Uh, mm-hmm. It's fascinating to debate the subject with him. So it's a it's a must listen to episode. Okay. So I'll ask you: Do you think that? Everyone has the capability of achieving the same level of creativity as Jobs, Da Vinci, Einstein, right? How much is nature versus nurture? Um,
0: Yeah, I I don't know that everybody has the same capacity. I just was up in San Francisco watching uh, Yuja Wong, the Chinese pianist. I don't know if you know who she is, but you go onto YouTube and you can see she is just absolutely remarkable as a pianist and she's been working at it since she was six years of age. Mm. And let's take Nathan Chun, who just won the gold medal in the Olympics. Uh, You know, he's been working on this since he was about six years of age. A lot of these people, it's the skiers, they start when they're about (laughs) six years of age or younger. And some of them make it and some of them don't to the very top of their, their level. Some of them do. I think some of that has to do with talent it has to do with finger size it has to do with the ability to memorize it has to you know there's a lot of other skill sets that are involved with this but if you look at small children you really quickly begin to see how enormously creative human beings are just i mean children are mind blowing sometimes in how creative they are and then we slowly but surely get that cut out from us i think our school the
1: ego system, comes in i think
0: well i think the school system's too have a little bit to do with that you know we get taught right and wrong answers and yeah. so we start looking not for the creative answer but for the the right answer um, we when we're small children i mean children say a gazillion times a day why 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 is the sky blue why is this this why is this this i think on average children young children say why about 400 times a day it's it drives parents crazy yeah.
1: it's natural curiosity of course yeah
0: Oh, and then you say come on just forget the why, it just, it is. <laughs> and eventually we begin to, our minds begin shape that there's a way to be in this world. And then a lot of that creativity goes away. Now, somebody like, obviously like Steve Jobs, he, it, it didn't go away. No. <laughs> it did not go away for him. And, but he was kind of a rebel, you know, there are all those things that were going on with him. S- sometimes I, Probably in the case of Einstein, it was just his sheer intelligence. Uh, In the case of this pianist, is her her, because she she practices nine hours a day?
1: But the practice is is, isn't that the case? I mean, you know, it's it's yes, you can be creative, creatively born in a sense, right? Yes, right. You start losing it, but. Right. How much does practice come into play? I mean, Steve Jobs practiced and practiced and practiced, and yeah. you know, for his speeches, for his that's where his marketing genius came. He practiced right. ninety hours for a one-hour speech. Right? right. Einstein, I can't even imagine the hours that oh, he put he into was it. Totally you know? lost in his scientific yeah. thought. Yeah.
0: Uh, and and I know in the speaking business, of which I know a lot of people. They, I mean, Jim Cathcart didn't wake up one morning and suddenly found he was a good. No. speaker. He's been doing this for a long time and he's observed what works, what doesn't work. He, And, and he uses every opportunity he can to speak as well. Does, that's, yeah. that's really, that's really key. Uh, I've been so struck by the Olympics this year of how these people are just, they're so committed. I don't know what kind of a family life they have, but they're committed to their craft and, yeah. Uh, and then they develop all these little and if I turn my foot this way, maybe I'll get down that that gate a little bit faster and won't fall, or you know, and they yeah. they it's it's all about the minutiae at that point, but it takes years and years to get to that point.
1: I, I get it. My dad is a uh, violin maker, Luthier. oh wow. And he literally dedicated his entire life. And I'm talking every minute of every hour. Since I was born to this craft, and he does the little minutiae, and he changed her and he's getting better and better, and he's in his seventies now, and he's performing at at the peak level of his career, right? But that comes with a price.
0: Yeah, it comes with. Of course, you can't do everything. You, you simply cannot. Uh, it's nice if you have a partner who supports it. Uh, so if you're both involved in something, then that that Support works.
1: Critical. Yes, you're right. Yeah,
0: it is but uh I begin to think more and more how important it is to start very young and then keep working and, and and you can, and you've got to narrow down as well uh, I think one mistake I made in my life is that I would allow myself to get entranced by something else that came along but eventually i'm and i'm even now I'm still narrowing and narrowing and narrowing uh, I mean I'm not I'm not going to be looking at branded service. I'm not going to be looking at stress management or time management. Now I'm looking at complaint is a gift and creativity. That's it. And maybe next year it'll just be one of those. I don't know. I just, I can't do it. I can't do it all.
1: No, focus is key. And if you want to get anything done, you have to focus. Let me ask you about mind flexors. Do they have anything to do with creativity?
0: Yes. So what are they? They're they're little tiny uh, exercises. Uh, I'll give you a really simple one. I mean, this is not even necessarily a particularly good one. Well, I'll just take this. So I've got this little clip right here. Okay, give me uh, 20 reasons uh, where you could use this on your body to help you uh, look better. And then you just, you have to come up with 20 reasons. So I've got, I've produced like two years worth. So like 700 and some of these exercises. And what people find is that they just do one a day. That's all I recommend is one a day. Mm, don't even do one a day. That's fine. But one a day. And what people find is that very very quickly they notice that their brain begins to uh, begins to open up. I, I do this. I mean I notice it in myself. My I'm a very creative person, but I'm only creative because I, you know I. That's how I think. What I yeah. can I do this? Yeah.
1: And, Mind flexing your way into creativity.
0: Exactly, right. And the whole thing, the, the metaphor, if we've got time for this, the metaphor that I use is unbind your mind. That's the title, unbind your mind. And it, it came out of uh, uh, the Chinese habit of binding women's feet. And I, mm. I saw that when I lived in Asia. And these, you know, it was very costly to the whole society. And when women were young, and they were getting their feet bound, because it was incredibly painful. And they, um, they said, you know, when I grow up, I'm never going to do this to my daughters. But they did. Um, they did, because that was how you survived in the society. A thousand years, basically half the population had their feet where the toes were put under the arch. And then the arch was crushed forward so that these bones up here broke and crammed into something that desirably was no bigger than three inches. So Toast. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's just, you know, people, people today, when I tell that story, some people don't like it. They don't, Oh, come on. That's so it's so, you know, who would ever do that? Heck, you know, women for a long time used to bind their waists yeah. into like these 11, 12 inch waists where they destroyed their internal organs. It, we, we've been doing the same thing. Um, and, So then at some point, the Chinese decided that didn't make them look real good in the world. So they stopped doing it, but they couldn't unbind their feet because at that point they were frozen in place. And so the question I have always when I work in this area is, how are you binding your mind? What are you doing to bind your mind? And one of the ways we bind our mind is we say, I'm not creative.
1: Yes. I'm not good enough. I'm not creative. I can't. Yes. Mm Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: You ask the question of, "Do I think everybody's creative?" I do think this. I think everybody, every, everybody can be more creative. I I really do believe that. But you you can't do everything. You've got to narrow and focus your so your craft is now. I'm creative about this. When you're little, you can do ever whatever you want. But when you get older, you really do need to start narrowing down. Any any good business person, I think, knows this. You have I to. Hope,
1: I it. I hope that that those listening that don't believe that they're creative, will take your advice, do some mind flexing, go look in the mirror and tell yourself, you know, I could be creative. Maybe I am creative. Let me try it mm-hmm. and let's see what happens. I mean, you can't lose anything, right? What's the worst that could happen?
0: It's interesting that you say that look in the mirror because that was one of the first exercises I did with myself when I thought I wasn't creative. I really didn't believe I was creative. So I stand in front of the mirror in the morning, look at myself. And I'd say, Janelle, you are really creative. And I felt kind of stupid as I could. But <laughs> I said, and then I did that for six weeks in a row. And at the end of the six weeks, I began to notice a I began to look for those things in which I was creative. Uh, I think that kind of thing probably is very helpful to us on a lot of different areas. I'm a successful businessman. And then you begin to look for the ways or business person and you begin yeah. to look for the ways in which you are successful. You, but you it's, it starts with starts with a decision that I'm creative.
1: Hat number one, the soul. And that is self-love, mindset, belief.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's why when I enter the bathroom every day and when I leave, I look at the reflection. I give that reflection a high five. And mm-hmm. that high five always comes back at me. Never <laughs> once did I give the reflection a high five and then <laughs> get one back. I like that. So at least that. Uh, so speaking of, of feeling good about ourselves, we've had a couple of years, right? So this pandemic has forced massive change. Many of us had to reinvent our lives. There were so many stressors thrown at us on a daily basis, now 18 months, maybe or two years already. So yeah. you're an expert in resilience. You know, what have you learned about yourself during this time and what specific strategies can you teach the seven hatters on how they can adapt and, and cope
0: I think a big mistake that we would make is to say, I just wanted to go back to the way that it was. Mm. And it's just such a big mistake to go yes. back to the way it was. Let's, let's see where we are today. And where we're going to go with this in the future. Uh, I I mean, you and I couldn't be doing this with us, our faces on looking at if, well, you're not that far away from me, but it still would involve one of us going something. The, yeah, it would do that, and so we can do. You can do thirty of these. Well, not thirty, but you could do ten of these a day. Yes. Uh, you couldn't. You couldn't do that. Now, what does that mean to you and your business, your marketing, your presence, your how you're influencing people? What does What does all of that mean? And that's what I think. I, I I really encourage people to. What is this change that's good? Let's Let's see if we can build on that. Let's because I don't I don't think we really want to look at all these people who are quitting their jobs. They don't want to go back to the way it was.
1: Correct. Yeah. Never go back. Always look forward. Uh, yeah. Did you find yourself breaking at times?
0: No, Mm-mm. I didn't. No, so Never. smooth
1: sailing the whole smooth, time.
0: Smooth sailing. I haven't I haven't been infected with the virus. I will say that. But I have had I mean, I had my foot
1: uh, had a little, a little cancer growing. But no fear. No, no, no issues. In, it
0: was in- amazing to me. I, I mean, I found the whole thing amazing. Look at the economy was still growing. Yeah. We went through a presidential election. We, I mean, there's just so many things that we did, and we did them differently, but we did them. And now the question is, is can we move forward with that? Does that, you know, what, what can we do about that?
1: Janelle, I love my guests. You're, you're, you're incredible. I just love the conversation. But I'd like to close out my interview with the following question. Okay. Who did you have to stop being? And who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Well, g- growing up in South Dakota,
0: I I think I always questioned m- my confidence. I mean, I was this, and I went to school at Berkeley. I was like, everybody there, I was undergraduate in the, the Yale and Harvard and Princeton. <laughs> I, I had to develop a stronger sense of confidence about myself. I mean, I didn't grow up in South Dakota and say, wow, I'm the cat's meow. I didn't. That was, I knew I was going to have to work at this to get out of this. I was very aware of, of the impact of the culture, family, all of friends, all of these things. So uh, that I have, uh, I, I, I'm quite confident at this point. I'm confident.
1: And it shows. <laughs> yeah. and, it shows.
0: Uh, and then and what was the second part of it was the, what is the part? Who did that you I have-,
1: have to become? So who did who you did? have to stop being and who did you have to become? Yeah,
0: I, I had to stop questioning myself and just and doing what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself and I, I think whatever I want to do, I can do. But, but I am also aware of less time to get it done.
1: Tell the seven hatters what you're currently up to, where they can connect with you, how they can interact with such a, a beautiful human being.
0: Well, thank you, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm I'm in the process of setting up a web page on a complaint as a gift. I'm working with a, a Mexican partner. Actually, she's European Mexican, and we're we're going to really push on this complaint as a gift. Uh, I, one of the workbooks that I've done is uh, 10 plus two best practices for managing complaints for inside businesses. So it's for managers, and then we've. Created another workbook with 101 exercises to get better at complaint handling. The book itself is more of an overview. So I really, I really want to focus on this because I think it's so important. Feedback. How do, you, how do you learn without feedback? Look at all these people in the Olympics. Not a single one of them is without a coach.
1: Oh, for sure. They're yes.
0: all with, and and then they then they do all kinds of things. You know, I was watching one of those skiers, and they they put themselves in wind tunnels. Because they're going down those slopes at 70 miles an hour. So, you know, you you got to push yourself if if you want to do that. And you don't have to, too. I'm perfectly fine with people sitting and watching it on television. I really am. I think that's fine. But if you've got that itch in you, that urge to create, to develop, to give something back to the world, and boy, does the world need it now.
1: Yes. I believe the seven hatters are the ones that have that itch. And yeah. I believe they're going to look you up. And if they don't believe they have creativity, they'll, they'll follow you and, yeah. and work through those mind flexors. Janelle, it was such a pleasure having you on The Seven Hats. Thank you so much for gracing us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Janelle. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And Here's My Takeaway. Are complaints gifts that keep on giving? In my experience, well, it depends on the mindset of the entrepreneur and the culture that they set within their team. Janelle explains that a brand is a promise to its customers, and you're either on brand or you're not. I've been an entrepreneur now for over 20 years, and I can tell you with certainty that brands mess up. They overpromise, and sometimes they underdeliver. They overestimate their capabilities at times, and when they release products and services, they usually get it wrong the first time. It takes effort to birth a product or service, and as in life, you must crawl before you run, and in the process, you will get bruised. No matter how hard we try as entrepreneurs, we sometimes can't help but be off-brand, and as a result, complaints will come our way. The phrase, a complaint is a gift, is powerful, because it is a complete mindset in and of itself. And if you adopt it, as I have after meeting Janelle, you will be rewarded in ways you never imagined. Keeping a client versus searching for a new replacement is way better financially, and more importantly, reputation-wise. I've learned this the hard way, as I'm sure some of you Seven Hatters have as well. So take the first step, say thank you to the next client who complains, and fix the issue due to the gift that you just received. I want to thank Janelle once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from her wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selik, and I tip my hat to you.